And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello world, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie and this week I am back with another interview for Miami Book Fair. Harmony and I are really, really excited to get to be back here. This week I'm joined by the author Ingrid Rojas Contreras and she, along with Thridi Umregar, Jacinda Townsend, and Sarai Walker are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They, along with Patti Smith, Lisa Genova, Rabia Chowdhury, Cy Montgomery, and Sandra Cisneros, are so looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and streamed live from the fair from Sunday, November 13th through Sunday, November 20th. Please visit MiamiBookFair.com for more information or follow MBF at MiamiBookFair, hashtag MiamiBookFair2022. Hi, Ingrid. Thank you so much for joining me today. Would you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I am Colombian by birth, and I grew up in Colombia, and I came to the U.S. when I was about 17. And I'm a writer living in San Francisco, and I teach at the University of San Francisco. And you're here today to talk a little bit about your memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the book? Yeah. So The the Man Who Could Move Clouds is my grandfather, and he was a curandero, which is a kind of like a South American traditional healer. And I always grew up with hearing stories about him. My mother became a curandera as well after him. So it's really a story about three generations, his generation, my mother's generation, and mine. It's a book that does a lot. So it's about, you know, curanderos and it's about healing, but it's also about colonization and migration and amnesia because my my mom and I both had accidents that where we ended up with with amnesia so it's really kind of yeah it covers a lot of ground it does cover a lot of ground and in a relatively very concise book too which was really impressive and as you mentioned this is a memoir that's simultaneously about you as an individual but also about your family and your family history and you open the book by saying that your choice trait about your family's legacy caused some strife, especially between you and your mother. So I was wondering if you can tell me a little bit about where to where the desire to write this memoir came from and how you kind of thought about the fact that you weren't just telling your story, but the story of multiple members of your family as well. I, I think that I started to want to tell the story really after I had amnesia. And there was something to losing kind of every knowledge of who I was in my past and, you know, living in that miasma of no self and no time and and no roots to anything. After it started to come back and I was recovering my memories and I was remembering my family, 
it I just I got to hear all of that as if for a first for the first time and I just really I don't know developed a new relationship to to those stories to you know the the, the you know my grandfather and my mother and just their their lives as as people who heal other people and so then it just became I think for myself I needed to write the book in order to understand myself better I don't know sometimes we say that the you know the there's a very deeply personal reason why you need to write something because writing a book can be very hard and so you know so not only must you be attracted to the kind of story that you're telling but also there must be some kind of deep reason why why you feel called to do it and i i think for myself it was i wanted to make space make room find language for what i had gone through you know with amnesia and also just looking back at my life and my family and and what it all meant in my life and how it was showing up in my life so one of the things that i that i really loved was seeing all of these repetitions and parallels that went from my grandfather's life to my mother's life. And when I had amnesia, I just thought of that as my parallel with my mother. And as a storyteller, just I became enamored with the idea that stories can repeat across generations. And that's something that, you know, your grandfather lived can show up in your life in a different way, but it's the same story, but with different characters. So, yeah, so then I, I think of that moment when I understood myself in the context, a much larger context, it just became inescapable, you know, I just really, I could not escape, you know, writing this, I just kind of became very excited by that idea. And as you know, I just, I was starting to write it in my head, even, even before I was, I was writing it down. That makes a lot of sense to me, especially the part where you were sharing that after you experienced amnesia, you were hearing all of these stories again for the first time and it kind of recontextualized them for you. A lot of this memoir as well also thinks in relation to this vein about responsibly sharing knowledge and you're giving name to and writing down certain secrets that have been in your family for generations. Your mom was given access to some of that same knowledge, even if after it had been kind of kept from the woman in your family. So how did you think about choosing what knowledge to put in your memoir and what to give language to versus what to keep to yourself? Because I'm sure that in 300 pages, you weren't able to tell the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was just about identifying what the sensitive information was. And I think with, and I guess this depends culturally on what, you know, different curandero traditions, but some traditions... For example, I see some curandero traditions. You can just take a workshop and learn all about how to do, you know, whatever. And yeah, in my family, it's, it's it was more kind of guarded. And there's this whole history of a person in the family becoming a curandero. And then they would choose one one son to, to pass it off to. And th- there were all of these tests that would happen. So... And the, the knowledge that would be passed down would be plant medicine and plant knowledge. And it would also be setting bones. And it would also be, you know, how do you have talking to the dead and telling the future. So it was just kind of a, a range of a range of things. And my grandfather 
told my mother about some of the tests that you would have to, I guess, pass. But but one of them was that he would be told orally the information for how to do something. And then if he couldn't repeat it accurately right away, then then his dad might have said, you're not good for it because you don't have a good memory. And so there were all of these, you know, series of things that that kind of would would kind of choose the right person to pass the knowledge to. And then all of this knowledge is just passed down person to person orally. So I I think that the when I'm telling a, a story, I'm not revealing a secret, right? But if I am giving you the ingredients or I'm giving you the process and method for how to do something, then that's, you know, that's the secret that I'm not allowed to to divulge. So that's really how I found my way to it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that was related to secrets in the book that I thought was interesting was how was the idea that your mother's use of the secret is was almost supposed to curse the family and then your amnesia is caused by a cursed black dress but at one point your mom points out to you that there's no such thing as curses it's just life and life kind of happens to everybody so i was wondering kind of in all of that context what is your philosophy on curses has any of that changed and how you kind of think about that maybe with a different context after your bike accident i think something my grandfather said that my mother couldn't learn how to be a curandera because if women became a curanderas, then something bad would happen in the family. So it'd be like you were attracting, I don't know, you were attracting crisis or you were attracting, you know, something bad would happen. And I mean, I there's a lot of accidents in the memoir and a lot of things going wrong in the memoir. One of the things, you know, my, my mother's way of becoming a, a, a curandera was that she fell down this empty well when she was a young girl and she, you know, just fell through it and hit her head. And she was without a memory for about half of a year or more than half of a year. And when her memory started to come back, then she also noticed that she just started to see things that weren't there and she could hear things that nobody else could hear. And so in the family, everyone said, oh, she's, she, through this accident, through this fall, she found a new way to be in the world that none of us have access to. And so that's an example of, you know, something, a crisis happening that then leads to something else, like a growth, a growth into a new sort of life. With, when I was, so this was in, in 2007, and I just fell in love with this black dress. And when I told my mother, I show, I, I think I, yeah, I mailed her a photo of the dress and she said like, stay away from this dress. This dress is gonna make you into a widow is what she said. And I didn't believe her. I, it was a new dress that, you know, I was just like, I don't think that this is true. And I was, you know, biking on my way to pick up the dress from the seamstress where I had dropped it off for alterations. And then on my way there, somebody opened their car door into the bike lane and I just crashed into it. And so that's how I lost my memory. But losing my memory also wasn't, I didn't experience, it was a crisis, but I didn't experience that as a purely negative thing. To me, I say that that's, losing my memory is the best thing that ever happened. Or, you know, the experience of it, even the experience of it and after is the best thing that ever happened to me. It just felt so amazing in my body. I just felt very light and I just felt this incredible 
joy that I've never, you know, felt and doubt will ever feel again. So I, I, I think in the end, I understand what my mother is saying about there's no such thing as curses. And I think what she means is that curse is just this kind of added weight that we put on a crisis happening. And, you know, crises are the most, actually the most normal thing in the world. Everyone's lives will be visited at some point by some crisis. And it's certainly a, a demanding time. And it's also, you know, a time through which a lot of things might change. There's there's a way in which a new growth can happen from that, or you, you know, you, you, you change, you absorb it, you adapt to it, you grow around it. And I think that's what she means, that that's part of life. And the other thing that I think she was she was saying alongside with that is that everybody, since that kind of crisis will happen to everybody, then believing in a curse means that you believe in being spared. And if you believe in being spared, it means that you believe that you 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 out, you know, above everyone should not kind of suffer or should not go through this thing that we all go through. Yeah. And so I think in that sense, I. I also don't believe in curses. Thank you for sharing all of that. You've touched on this a little bit already, but one of the things I was really struck by while I was reading the memoir is that it's so based in context. You and your life story are really interesting in and of themselves, but you place it in the context of your family history so that readers can see the bigger picture. But then you also place your story and your family history into the context of colonialism and imperialism in Colombia, and you personalize that history. So I was curious about when you were writing, did you set out initially to tell your story in that context of colonial history? Or did those weavings of colonialism as kind of call outs in the memoir come later in the process? They kind of happened naturally. As I was writing, I think I initially just set out to tell the family story. So, you know, the family story was, I, you know, there were things that that were exciting to me in the beginning. And one of them, I think one of one of them that I just kept getting drawn back to was that my grandfather had a business card, and I just loved the idea that a curandero would have a business card. And I just can't get over this object. Still, I think that this object is amazing. But it, it you know, it reads his name, and then it says, "Here's you of all kinds of illnesses: diabetes, obesity, sinusitis, cancer, and witchcraft." And then at the bottom of that, it says licensed by the scientific center, which doesn't exist. And he just made up, (laughs) but he was just, you know, trying to, I think, make money is what that was. And I think he said the, the scientific center line was for skeptics who wouldn't believe in his abilities. (laughs) So anyway, so, you know, so it's just this astounding object. And to me, it's just, it's beautiful. And the story you know, almost writes itself from that one object. So that was one of the things that I was really excited about in the beginning. And then as I started to get into the story, and then I, you know, came across this question of, oh, my mother couldn't become a curandera because she was a woman. And then I started to wonder, where does that come from? Or did my grandfather say that? Or who said that? And I just started to work my way back. And then found myself investigating curandero history and then, you know, thinking about why all of this knowledge would be passed down orally, 
And I, I think I just found myself all the way back to colonization. And what happened when Europeans came to, to Colombia, that if there were mestizo who were the half Spanish, half indigenous, or, you know, sometimes like half African, half Spanish, or just whatever, you know, mix of racial lineage that you, that each person had, the, the Spanish inquisition had a presence there. And so if you were, if you had Spanish blood in you, then you would be, you could be accused of heresy if you were practicing these, these other traditions, you know, whatever, like whether it was African or whether it was indigenous, you would be accused of, you know, witchcraft. And then that meant that they could apprehend you and sent you to the Palace of Inquisition in Cartagena, and you could be tortured or, yeah, a few people were like burnt at the stake. And so there was all of this kind of fear about, and a lot of hiding for, you know, all of the people of color. And yeah, so, so I think, it, you know, in that time, it just, it kind of started to be that you then had a sort of secret, secret traditions that were taking place, not because it's meant to be a secret just because it, it was like initially persecuted. So, you know, so I just found my way there by following these trail of questions that I was having about why some things were the way, the way that they were. So it just kind of grew as I was, as I was writing it, actually, it was there in the first draft, but it's not something that I had planned I was going to do. Yeah, that's really fascinating. My when I'm not interviewing authors, my day, my day job is as a historian. So I, I love that for you. So so much of this started from that object of the business card and then kind yeah. of grew from there, which is, I agree, a fabulous object. I, and I love that you put a scan of it in the book. That made me really happy. I'm so glad. <laughs> Going off of that, though, at the end of the book, one of the one of the explorations of colonialization that you do is is you kind of explore different ways of memory keeping in the very written and rigid Western tradition of writing everything down, which actually culminates in a historical text turning to dust in your hands. And then the oral tradition of Columbia, and maybe more importantly, your mother and her foremothers. So I'm, I'm curious, for readers who are coming to this, like me, from a very Western lens, what do you hope they take away from this book about colonizing culture and how it relates to memory and history? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think, you know, what I what I was trying to do is I was trying to make a record and I was trying to do that in a, you know, in a in a memoir so that it had a narrative and that it had all of the things that I love about literature in it, like character and conflict and plot. And I also just wanted a place where a reader could enter the book and then understand and be surrounded by a Colombian worldview that I grew up around in. So I, I just kind of, I, I just really wanted to build a world that was just kind of centered around that. And yeah, I, you know, as so I was, I was looking at records and I was trying to find, you know, different ways to, to find documentation for, for what I was writing about. And I just, you know, I, I came across again and again, up against this problem of who are the people who are keeping the records and what stories are they interested in in archiving or telling or documenting and 
just to go back to the, the times of the Spanish Inquisition, there's there are all of these oral stories about hangings happening at the top of of this of this mountain in Ocaña, which is the village where my family is from. And, you know, there's, there's just been story and it, it became like a ghost story at some point, but there's all of these stories and the the Inquisition at the time who had a presence in the in the village were not allowed to do any kind of, I don't know, killings or I don't know what they would call them. Yeah, I don't know. But they would they had to kind of send people to Cartagena. They were not allowed to act on anything. And in one of the places where I was looking for for documents actually used to be the office where the inquisitorial people were staying or, you know, where their offices were. And I, I was just, you know, looking and, and found out that they at some point were remodeling that site and they found this little cell and it had human bones in it. And so, you know, so it's, there's the definitely nobody's writing whatever happened down. Do you know what I mean? So it's, I think in Colombia, especially when you when you're talking about violence or you know histories that are lost to time just because of conflict or war or just because it's it belongs to, to a community that the record keepers are not interested in. That you know sometimes you just end up with the only thing that you can turn to is oral history, and then it just kind of has its own value and, and knowledge. And I think that we we tend to put a lot of, I guess, appreciation on the written record. But, you know, but there's this other, sometimes that's impossible or sometimes that's just not even there. And so what do you turn to to then write a story if you want to make space for it and you want to, you know, write it down? Yeah, so... I think ultimately what I what I want the reader to experience is or to know is just that they're walking into in, into what it would be like. I'm not I'm trying to tell the story how we would have told it in my family. So I'm trying to kind of keep the language that we would use and just yeah, and, and just kind of try to use a lot of the oral history. Something that I often bump up against in my work is this idea that somehow if something's been written down, it's more valid in some way, as if the person who was writing something down didn't have their own thoughts and opinions and agendas right. in the same way that somebody yeah. telling a story would. And so I really, there's this really powerful line that you say on page 268 that's something about that the language of power has a limited imagination. And when you mm -hmm. break out of that, that's where your story begins. And I... First of all, that knocked my socks off mm. because it was just a very beautiful line. But it really spoke to me, I think, about this idea of exactly what you were saying, that as a reader, I personally at least got the sense that you were combining these different methods of memory keeping together and creating something new and personal and unique to you that really I found very compelling. So thank you for sharing all of that. I really, mm. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. One of the key themes that you explore in, in the memoir and that you have already talked about a little bit is that there's a parallel in your life and your mother's life where you've both experienced amnesia. So this is a book that explores memory, but also what it means to live without memory, which you describe as kind of living as a ghost. So I was wondering, as you were kind of revisiting that experience and reprocessing that while you were writing your memoir, did you learn anything new about memory and identity as you were sort of thinking back to that very 
intensely joyous, but I'm sure also probably pretty confusing time in your life? You know, sometimes I just, I try to remember what that time was like, because I, I really feel that it was, it was, it was just such a, I don't know, such a, such a strong ability to just be in the moment and be present to whatever was in front of me and just living in the beauty of, of each second. I did, you know, what I did is I did go back to the site of the accident where it happened this past, I I think September is when I went. So I went to the intersection where my accident happened and it it really felt like I was coming home to something. You know that feeling when you go back to your to your to your town or the, your house where you grew up in and you just have this overwhelming feeling of I'm I'm home and I my body knows that I'm home. I had that feeling about this random inter- intersection in, in in Chicago. There's it's not a pretty intersection. There's like a Whole Foods in one corner. <laughs> There's like an abandoned, I don't know, abandoned building in another. There's, you know, tons of traffic. There's this intense, very bizarre condo that kind of looks like this silver bullet that just rises into the sky. It's just a very bizarre, <laughs> bizarre intersection. And yet I just, I got there and I bought a chocolate pretzel and then I just sat in the corner and just sat there for an hour and I could have sat there for five hours I'm sure and it it was just I I could almost feel again what I had felt right after the accident which was this just uh, just this large sense of wonder and being astonished finding it astonishing that that I'm alive and that everyone is alive and that things are how they are yeah, I think I uh, sometimes I try to tap into that into that knowledge, but I would say that 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 experience and that that feeling and that emotion felt just really wise to me and just felt like something that I could have never achieved or gotten to on my own. So it really feels like a like a gift. I think that moments like that, especially in a, a capitalist nightmare on in the middle of uh, a strange intersection in Chicago are the moments that we have to cling to the most sometimes of just like, all right, I'm here and I'm alive. And there's something very beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. You also, of course, though, write about your mother's experience with amnesia, which in many ways is very similar to yours, but is also in some ways very different. When you were writing those sections that kind of represented her experience how much of it was pulling from things that she had told you? How much was it, was it sort of, I don't want to say imaginative, but kind of a blending of your own experience and what you learned? How did you think about crafting those sections? So I was, I was writing my section and then I, you know, the, the story of my mother's amnesia is, is one story that I've, that I've heard multiple times. My mother is definitely someone who, who likes to repeat stories. I don't know if you have anybody in your life that loves to do this, but she loves to do this to the point where sometimes my family and I, we just get so just annoyed with all of the times that she tells stories. So we'll just start to hold up a number of fingers for the times that she's tried to tell the story. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but it's also really good for memoir writing 
because it means that she will on her own just want me to tell just just want to tell me the same story over and over again and i found that what happens when somebody does that is that there's all kinds of details that start to emerge from the telling and the, you know, if you're doing interviews, you might get the, a version of the story one time and it probably will be the skeleton of what happened. And then when the person knows that you know the story, they just start to tell you all sorts of things that are around the story and that are not kind of pertinent to the skeleton, but they just kind of, you know, they're like, oh, you know this, well, this other interesting thing was happening at the time or, or I felt this way or suddenly she'll remember what the weather was. So I was doing that so that was already happening and i had a lot of extra sensory details from that and as i was writing my own parts and i was trying to pair them with you know moments in her accident that might mirror the my that whatever scene i was telling in my accident i would ask her like if i would just kind of call and just ask her questions about it so I, you know, I would just say like, oh, I'm just reading the scene and you were walking right up to the well and I imagined that it looked this way. And I would say, do, do you think, what do you think? And then she would either agree or she would correct or she would kind of add to it or she would say like, no, that's completely wrong. It was this other way. I really, through, you know, in this book, I, I had... A habit of of just calling her in my morning hours, which is when I was writing, and she just kind of came to expect it while I was while I was drafting. That's really beautiful. It become it became like a collaborative process almost. Then, is yeah, your, yeah, I love that. And I do also have a family member who tells the same story over <laughs> and over again. And I I also I think as I grew older, learned to appreciate the ways in which you could see deeper into the story the more it was told. We didn't use fingers, though. We would just start popcorning around and each take the next sentence away from her because we were oh, like, we all... amazing. amazing. We know this story by heart, Grandma. <laughs> you know, my dad does this thing where he would get part of his shirt and bunch it in his fist so that there's this little kind of mound coming from his fist. And he would, he would if we, the first time that we ask him, like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, this is the little little doll that I'm making for your mother so she can tell the story to the little doll because I'm not listening. <laughs> so then sometimes when she's like retelling a story and he doesn't want to hear, he'll just silently do that, like bunch his shirt into a little make-believe doll that so that he's like, I am not listening to you. Tell it to the... <laughs> that is so sassy and also yeah. <laughs> so funny to just be able to just I'm just gonna make you a different audience member <laughs> yeah hilarious they're so funny yeah they are very sassy together <laughs> uh, speaking of stories a really compelling thread in this memoir for me that I really I think clung to was how stories affect our everyday lives and our sense of self. And you say that one of the lessons your mother learned when she was starting out professionally as a curandera was that people don't need facts from divination. They need stories about the selves, uh, themselves and the world. Word, oh my goodness, I can't speak anymore, apparently. <laughs> and the world around them. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how we can all maybe take better control of our stories and understanding when we need to start finding new narratives for ourselves. Mm. Oh, I love this question. I mean, I, I often think about, you know, my mother would, I was a very curious child and she, yeah, my mother had, 
the curandera business in the attic of our house when I was growing up and I was always kind of constantly watching everyone that came and for her and so I would just watch them come and go down the stairs and then when they would leave I would ask her like what what were they here for what did they want and then she would tell me and one, one of the things that I that just really marked me as a young person when she was she was describing this to me was that so many people came in the in the middle of a crisis and they you know had something that they wanted to know they wanted to know you know is my husband cheating on me they wanted to know are we going to lose the house very serious stuff and that had she kind of given the them the answer yes or you know no you're not going to lose your house it it didn't kind of really satisfy whatever they had come for and this is this is what she said that people wanted an experience of freedom or so they just wanted to come back to themselves in some way or they just wanted to free themselves for something from something so yeah i th i think that sometimes we become captive to the stories that we say about ourselves or that other people tell about us and maybe yeah maybe if there's a feeling of captivity to something that it's it's a good kind of opportunity to ask who is who is telling this who is telling the story and what are the other points of view and what power do i have in this story and i i think those are very important questions to ask because it it's you know you start to find your way out of those stories in that way i love asking those questions i think that's part of the reason harmony and i started this podcast was that, so that we could ask those questions about stories and try and find answers for ourselves. But I love how there's such a real example in the memoir too about taking control of your own narratives and finding new stories. The vignette that you share about, about your sister in recovery, deciding that she wanted to have a child and then getting pregnant and your worry about that situation, which is very understandable. And your mom being like, no, no, you're not listening. This is the new story. This is the narrative mm -hmm. and things are going to be okay. That made me so emotional, but it also felt so empowering to see that enacted mm -hmm. in, in yeah. the memoir. Yeah, and she had she had a she had an eating disorder, and she was in a, in an inpatient program. And yeah, we just really didn't know if she was gonna make it. Honestly, we were just kind of worried sick about her. And we yeah, it's just the it it was just this time where we everyone was trying everything she was she was going to she was seeing a psychologist and therapists and you know nutritionists and you know we we were there everyone's just trying to support her we thought at some point it just really becomes you know she has to see a new story in in all of this and so that moment when she she just said i i think that i want to have a baby we just i think my mother and i both understood this is her deciding to stay and that this is also her deciding or you know finally kind of seeing a future seeing herself in the future which i think is very hard when you're in the middle of a crisis so that yeah that was amazing and yeah i i think i was just living in such worry that i couldn't even recognize that that, that that's what it was i was just worried and then yeah my mother was like no just pay attention this is the <laughs> this is the new chapter yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's even if the crisis isn't necessarily happening directly to you in your body, it's still it, it still becomes part of your story. So in some ways you had to see it in the same way that your sister did. Mm -hmm. 
I don't want to leave today, though, without talking at least a little bit about the person who inspired the name of this memoir, your no-no, a man who clearly contained multitudes and could also move the clouds. I was wondering, has your relationship with his memory changed since writing the memoir? And were you surprised by anything you discovered about his life as you were writing? No, I I think, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I, I just always heard, you know, my mother is a very kind of honest person. And so I would, you know, I just kind of grew up hearing stories about, you know, and, and I would, you know, hear different stories from aunts and uncles who would say, describe what he did and what happened when he when he was moving clouds. And this is something that sometimes he would do for, for farmers or sometimes he would do it, I guess, just for fun to please my mother. And, you know, so I would I would hear stories about that and he he would like wear all white and he would go on all of these very long journeys annually where he would he would go away and then he would you know the mission of it was that he was gathering more plant knowledge or that he would be trading knowledge with other curanderos or he would be visiting local tribes and then he would come back and my mother said that he he always brought back an animal that he somehow adopted along the way so he came back with parrots an armadillo one time he came back with an anaconda another time so just this kind of larger than life person and then my mother would say but also we were living in poverty and he would be gone for three to six months and then he had other women that he was also going to see and left my grandmother in the middle of of a, of a civil war conflict just left her to, to try to feed her, their children. And so I would hear kind of all of that together. And I always grew up hearing all of that together. So I always understood the, the kind of his, his very charming life and then the kind of more abusive kind of private side that he had. Yeah. So when I was, I was writing it, it I think that growing up hearing about him in that way, just made it really possible to write him that way too. There are so many different places I think we could have gone, but is there anything that you wanted to talk about regarding the man who could move clouds that I haven't asked you about? Not that I can think of. No, I think we've covered a lot. (laughs) Perfect. Do you have any upcoming works that our listeners should be keeping their eyes out for? I am. No, I'm just currently drafting and playing around, but nothing, nothing too definite yet. Very fun. Well, we'll keep our eyes out for an announcement maybe eventually when you're when you're done <laughs> playing around. But that's the most fun part of being creative, I think, is that space where you get to just, it's you and the page, right? Yes. Yeah. I love that stage. It's really fun. <laughs> All right, Ingrid, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had a lovely time chatting with you. Fantastic. All right, listeners, we'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBCpod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, 
and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.